we are going to look at Philippians chapter 3, and we'll start with verse 1 and go down through verse 11. You know, up to, up to this point, the Apostle Paul had been just kind of telling them what was going on with him. He was talking about and emphasizing unity and that type of a thing and, and joy in the Christian life. And now he talks about something that's a, it's a really a very serious note. He's dealing with false teachers, which was an issue back then just as much as it is today. <clears throat> so, let me read this to you. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Christ, comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You know, I've mentioned this old doctor before, but I will tell you another story about him. Back whenever I was a pastor in Bertram, which is in central Texas, in Burnett County. In Bertram, back whenever I lived there, was about the size of Mount Enterprise. It's just, you know, there's about 700 people there, which, oh, that's bigger than Mount Enterprise now. But anyway, uh, but there was, a, there was a store. Well, we had the business district there in Bertram, and it was a block long. And one of the things there in the business district was Daddy Ben Warden's grocery store. He was quite a character. He was well into his 90s at the time and as fit as a fiddle. By the way, if you ever came in and noticed that he didn't have his false teeth in, it was because he was chewing plug tobacco and he didn't want to stain his teeth. <laughs> one time I was in there and he, like I said, he was just a lively little old fella. He was a in fact, he, was, he would go and open his store at about 7 o'clock every morning and would drive past our house doing it. He had an old 51 Ford pickup, and he never got it out of second gear. I mean, he was roaring down that street to open up the store at 7. One time, he pulled in in front of the store and hit the brakes, and it just kept on going, and he drove right in the middle of his store. Now, this was in the mid-'80s, and he'd, he told me, he said, well, he said, I bought this thing new in 1951. I've never done a brake job on it until now. <laughs> anyway, but one time he started and he delighted in telling people the secret of his good health. His doctor was an old doctor that had been there and had died way before I moved there. It was Dr. Vaughn. 
He, told, he said, I used to have all kind of problems and being sick all the time, and Dr. Vaughn told me to quit eating green leafy vegetables. Now I don't eat anything but meat and potatoes, and I'm never sick. My wife gets a flu shot every year. The last time I had a flu shot, it gave me the flu. I never do take them anymore. My wife takes a bunch of pills every day. I don't take any medicine. See, Dr. Vaughn told him what to do, and as far as he was concerned, Dr. Vaughn was it. People like him would tell you that Dr. Vaughn was one of the finest surgeons in Central Texas. They thought that if he had, they had ear problems, throat problems, broken bones, any kind of thing, Dr. Vaughn could take care of it, and he would. Evidently, he was quite the physician. I kind of miss that, don't you? You know, it used to be that every little town had one, maybe two doctors, and it didn't make any difference what you had. You would go and, and, and go in there, and he would take care of it. I really never went to the doctor a whole lot until we moved here, and my wife started encouraging me to go in for an annual checkup. So I thought, well, what can it hurt? So I was in there getting a checkup with the doctor that she worked for at the time. And I pointed to a little thing on the top of my balding head, and I said, what is that place right there? And it was some kind of a growth, and he said, well, who's your dermatologist? I said, I thought you were, you know. I mean, <laughs> you're the one that gives me an exam. But nowadays, we have to go to specialists. And even a general practitioner specializes. He specializes in the things that the other specialists don't specialize in. I don't know, maybe I'm just a little bit nostalgic, but I just wish that there was certain things we could go back to where the doctor that you went to took care of everything. But we don't live in that type of a world anymore. Well, the Apostle Paul is talking about something far greater than growths on the top of our head here. He's talking about having a relationship with God and being able to stand before him and to be pronounced righteous and justified and what he's telling us is that there's one person that we need, and he's the only one that can bring us this justification, and that one person is Jesus Christ. You can't have a bunch of things making you righteous before God. There's only one person that can do it. And so he begins talking about false teachers, and these false teachers are what we would call Judaizers. They were people who may have conceded that Jesus was the Messiah, and they would have said that, and they would have probably conceded that he died on a cross and was raised from the dead. But they said, in order to be a part of God's people, you had to become Jewish. And if you were Greek, you just needed to become a Jewish proselyte. And what you needed to do is you had to uh, undergo all the rites of Judaism. You needed to, and one of those big things had to do with the, the ritual the ritual of circumcision. They said you had to do that if you were going to be right with God. Uh, another thing, some of them might have pushed it so far that you should observe a kosher diet, which meant no bacon, no ham. It would have really messed a bunch of us East Texans up. No fried catfish, you know, things like that. Because that was something that you were supposed to do if you were part of the people of God. The Apostle Paul really does not have any patience with this type of a thing. Notice what he calls them, and he uses what would have really been considered fairly strong language. He refers to them as dogs. 
Now, that was, those were almost like fighting words back then. And, and in calling them dogs, it was a thing that was used in Jewish society to refer to Gentiles. Basically, he was saying they're really not God's people. To say that, he was just saying that this is a type of a group that you don't need to associate with. Dogs back then were not cute puppies. You know, you didn't have a little puppy and kept him in your lap all the time. Dogs were things that were just strays, and they'd go around eating whatever they could find. It was not a polite term. And he said, that's about what these false teachers are. He also referred to them <clears throat> as evildoers. What they were doing was not just off course. It was evil. It was wicked, and it was done with envy and selfish design. He referred to them as mutilators of the flesh which is kind of an interesting thing. If you have an ESV, he refers to them as mutilators of the flesh. Now, early this morning, whenever we had our mask-only service, we, uh, we had some in there that had a King James Version. If you have a King James Version in there, you notice that he does not refer to them as mutilators of the flesh, but he refers to them as the concision. And, he, and it's really... It's kind of neat the way the King James Version did it like that because there's a play on words that was used in the language that Paul used. The term for circumcision is, is a word that was, a Greek word that was called peritome. means a cutting around. The Apostle Paul says we're the peritome. They are the katatome, which meant mutilation. And so that's where they came up with the idea on concision. Anyway, what he was saying was that these people are not to be considered godly, they are not to be trusted, and they're not to be associated with. False teaching is not just something in which there's differences in the way you think about certain things. False teaching is something that is dangerous. Now, let's admit it. You know, if there's one thing that Baptists know how to do, it's to argue over stuff. And there are certain doctrines that are not the most important ones in the world, and we can have, and they are not tests of fellowship. And one of them in particular is this. It has to do with your views on the second coming. Now, I think that if we are going to, to be true to Scripture, we must say that Jesus is coming back, and he is coming back personally and physically and visibly. This is a thing that the church has agreed on for a long, 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 long time. But folks, whether he comes back before a tribulation or after a tribulation or during the middle of a tribulation period, that really doesn't make that much difference. Whether he comes before the millennium or after the millennium or whether or not this is the millennium. Listen, Christians have fellowship together and work together and preach the gospel together holding different viewpoints on that. Okay, don't let that be a test of fellowship. But there are certain things that we must stand for and not give one inch of ground. And it has to do with the person of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that we can obtain through him and only through him. It's always about Jesus Christ plus nothing else. Once you have him, you have all that you need. Legalism goes against Jesus Christ. And have you ever thought about this? You think about what, what life was like in first century Judea and Galilee during the time of Jesus. I mean, there were so many things you had to watch out for. You know, there was such a thing called a Sabbath day journey, and you see it in the book of Acts chapter 1. And correct me if, if any of you are up, boned up on this. I'm thinking that was an eighth of a mile. 
Something like that. It was not a very long distance. That was as far as you were supposed to walk on the Sabbath day. Don't drag a stick in the dirt on the Sabbath day either because that constituted plowing. You know, and, and all kinds of little rules and regulations that really weren't even found in Scripture. But this was legalism. You say, well, I don't think I'd want to live like that. Well, let me tell you something. Legalism is popular and always will be because it's easier than living by faith. Get it this, understand it this way. In order to be a legalist, all you have to do is to keep a certain set of rules and regulations. That's it. It's something that's a finite number of rules that you have to do. And once you have completed that, as far as legalism is concerned, you've fulfilled your commitment to God. Faith is a completely different thing. To live by faith is a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day thing. And whenever you live by faith, you live that way every day, all day long. Listen, legalism never gives you any certainty of hope. It doesn't. Certainty of hope is based on God's mercy because his mercy does not change. Certainty does not, is not based on our accomplishments because our accomplishments sometimes are not real good. <laughs> so, in verses 1 and 2, he, the, the passage we're looking at tells us to beware of false teachers. In verse 3, it tells us to, how to recognize God's true people. It says, because we are the, uh, the real circumcision, the ones, we are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, God's true people are those who have experienced an inner work. It is a true circumcision, which even the Old Testament would talk about this circumcision of the heart. In other words, something has gone on inside of you. Something has gone on to mark you off as belonging to God. Another thing is, is that those who are part of God's people are the ones who uh, have a worship that begins in the heart and not with some ritual. You know, and you read this in, uh, in, in John chapter 4 about the time of the woman at the well, where the woman at the well starts talking with Jesus, and pretty soon she begins to see that he can see right through her. He knows who she is. He knows what she's done. And so she begins to change her tune and decide to get it, get, change the subject a little bit. And she said, oh, well, you know, you know we, we, our, our, our fathers here, the Samaritans, they tell us to worship over here on this hill, Gerizim. But you Jews, you feel like you have to worship in, you know, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, like, what's right? And Jesus said, the day is coming and it's already here where people are not going to be worshiping on this hill or that hill that the true worshipers of God are going to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. In other words, whenever we are <clears throat> God's true people, that's the way that we're going to worship him. We're going to worship him in spirit. Our worship is going to be again in our heart and not with some ritual. Our worship is enabled by the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not something that we do simply because we grit our teeth and say we're going to do this whether we want to or not. Our worship and everything that we do is going to be something that is 
that is brought about by the Holy Spirit working in us. We're going to put our full faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it says that we rejoice in Christ Jesus. We glorify him. We don't glorify ourselves. A true worshiper of God is going to be someone who's unashamed to boast about Jesus. Those who are truly God's people do not rely upon their own deeds or their own attributes to make them right and acceptable before God. The scripture says that by the works of the flesh, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And the, work, the deeds of the flesh are all those things that we can do without God's help. So it doesn't make any difference what you may think about this. God's true people are a different breed. Another thing that we see here is it has to do with, to, tells us to refuse to rely on false grounds of confidence. Paul just says this. He said, you know, there's some of these people that they have confidence in the flesh. Well, if you want to talk about someone who has confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he starts rattling off his spiritual pedigree whenever he, before he was converted to Christ. Notice what he says. He said that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. In other words, this rite was administered to him in strict accordance with the guidelines laid down in the Old Testament. Every male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day. He came from the people of Israel. In other words, he was just no convert into Judaism. He said he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was, gave him some bragging rights, really. Benjamin might not have been a very big tribe and might not have covered a whole lot of area in the land of Canaan, but as the centuries went by, Benjamin was always going to be in alliance with Judah and, and not with Samaria. He says that he was, Paul says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, so, so he was not someone that was just, you know, by genetics a, a Hebrew. He was a Hebrew simply by his, by his background and by the lives that he had lived. In other words, there were certain people, there were a lot of Jewish people back then that uh, they had forgotten the language. And the language that most of the Jewish people spoke back then was Aramaic. But some of them did not do that. They had finally just kind of forgot about Aramaic and started spe speaking in Greek or in Latin. But he was someone who was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, yeah, Paul knew Greek. I'm sure he knew Latin. But he knew how to speak in Aramaic too. There's more to it than that though. Aramaic and Hebrew were a lot alike, but they were not the same language. And it seems obvious, especially when you read Paul's letters, not only could he handle Aramaic, which was the common language of the Jews, he knew Hebrew too. <laughs> and so he was a Hebrew that had, had grown up in, a, in this Hebrew society and in this Hebrew atmosphere. It says, as to the law, what was it? He was a Pharisee. He kept all the laws. And it said, as far as zeal went, he persecuted the church. As far as righteousness went under the law, he was blameless. And what he's saying is this, is that he had a pedigree that was very impressive. He was born into the right family. He was reared the right way. He scrupulously observed the law and persecuted anyone who seemed to oppose it. How much was that worth to him after he came to know Christ? 
He said, well, all of those things that he could talk about being his religious pedigree, he said, they add up to nothing, nothing. All of the things that I did on my own add up to nothing. As a matter of fact, he said, I count them as a loss. Not just that they don't make any difference. They are a debit on my spiritual account. This doesn't do me any good. It cripples me. And he could not have the righteousness that came by observing the law and the righteousness that comes from God. And he said, therefore, I consider them but foul rubbish. It's no good to me. Today, people can have their own little spiritual pedigrees. They can say that they were born into a Christian home. They can say that they went to church. They can say that they were baptized at a certain age. They can claim that they were tithers, that they went to Sunday school, and that they kept the law, and they did all of these things. But let me tell you something. This is not going to cause you to be right before God. It never will. It never has, and it's not going to at any time in the future. Listen, God's law is wonderful, and it's good. But what are we by nature? We're children of wrath by nature, and the law of God was not designed to make children of God out of children of wrath. It's just not going to happen. The only way that this can be done is for us to know Christ. And that's what he talks about in verses 7 through 11 is to seek the true knowledge of Christ. He said what he wants as far as Jesus was going, he said there's, a matter of fact, verse 8, he said, I count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And uh, another place right here in verse 10, he says, I want to know him. I want to know him. Now, knowing who Jesus is is a lot different than really knowing him. I went to high school with Bernie Sullenberger, Sully, when they made the movie about that, you know, landed the plane on the Hudson River. But I don't know him. (laughs) Know who he is, but I don't know him. A few years ago, uh, my wife's uh, high school senior class had a, had a class reunion. You'll never guess where we had it. We had it in Austin at the governor's mansion. <laughs> yes. It was so nice. You know why? My wife graduated from high school with Governor Abbott. And whenever we all got there, and there had to be five or 600 people there, it was like gazillions of folks. And he, he, they came rolling him out of the, the governor's mansion, and he parked his wheelchair at the bottom of the steps, and he welcomed all of us. And then he sat there in his wheelchair and greeted every, people just lined up to shake his hand. And he would shake your hand, and if you want your picture made with him, he had an assistant right there to take your picture with him. And we got up there, and uh, he asked, asked our name, or well, he could see our name tags, and then he asked me, he said, well, what kind of work do you do? I said, well, I'm, I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Mount Enterprise, Texas. He said, oh, I'm glad to hear about that. And we talked for a while. So I met him. Do I know him? No, I just know who he is. I don't know whether he put sugar in his coffee or not. I really don't. I just know who he is. And folks, 
when we're talking about knowing Jesus Christ, we're talking about doing more than just knowing who Jesus is. He's not just a figure in a storybook. He's not even the main character of the Bible. That's not the big thing. Understand, we need to have a relationship with him. In other words, I know him. He knows me. We talk to each other. We seek to, we seek to love each other more all the time. Or we seek to love him. He can't love us more than he already does. You see, and this is what we should do. Whenever we are God's people, we should seek to know Christ in a way in which we have a relationship with him that's intimate and personal. To know Christ is to be found in him, not having our own righteousness but his. And because real righteousness cannot be accomplished by sinful people. Forgiveness cannot be earned. Righteousness is a gift found in Christ and received by him. In other words, when God looks upon you, what he wants to see is the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you, not all the good deeds that you've done. Understand what we're talking about? Another thing that we need to do is if we seek the knowledge of Christ, we want to know his transforming power. He said, I want to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to know the work that goes on in, in your life. And, there's, and there, you have known people whose lives were dramatically changed. And the reason it was changed was by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your life, if you know him, has been changed and is being changed because we have been raised with Christ in other words, through his resurrection, we have, been, uh, we have been changed by his transforming power. He says, I also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And you may say, well, I don't think I want that. But you know something, his view of suffering was different than what we do because it was something he rejoiced in. And what he's saying is, is I want to be enough like Christ that people who hate Christ will attack me. <laughs> which sounds odd to us, but his desire to know Christ was a serious desire no matter how much it was going to cost. By the way, he was in prison for his ministry whenever he wrote this letter. To know Christ also is to have a confident hope. You know, the last verse that we read where he talks about, you know, that he wanted to know him and so on and so forth, in verse 11 it says that by any means possible... I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And some people will say, they'll read that, and it kind of looks like this at first, in which he has, the Apostle Paul has some doubt as to whether or not he's even going to go to heaven. But that's not what he's talking about right here. If you've read the first two chapters of Philippians, you see that he really doesn't have any doubt about that type of a thing. But there were some uncertainties. And what it was this... He was not uncertain about attaining the resurrection of the dead. The only uncertainty that he had was how it was going to come about. You know, he was a prisoner. How was he going to leave this world? Was it going to have his head chopped off? Or would he just die of old age? Or maybe he would die from some type of an accident or he may get shipwrecked again, or maybe he would die of some disease, or maybe, maybe he would be alive whenever Jesus Christ returned. He didn't know how it was going to happen. He just knew that it would. Listen, knowing Christ never brings about uncertainty. 
What's the basis of your hope? Is it knowing Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes from Christ. When you have that, you don't need anything else.